All right, we are rolling now. Ooh. I'm going to count us down. Three, two. You're listening to Missing Out with Lex Michael and Tari J. Let's start the show. Hey, guys. Welcome back to Missing Out. I'm Tari J. I'm Lex Michael. And we're joined by special guest, return 35-year-old white man, <laughs> yeah, you remember. Matt Smith. Yes, it's me. I'm 36 yeah, yeah, now. Yeah. Oh, congratulations. Um, happy happy <laughs> <not> belated. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, all right. So, Matt, uh, you know, give us the pitch. What are we talking about today? Today, we're talking about virtual cinematography, which sounds fancy, but it's not. And this is why it's important, because... It's been happening and it's continuing to happen in every movie you've ever seen since like oh three. Okay. Interesting. Um and Cut. for those who don't that was know a it, lie. <laughs> <laughs> that's an exaggeration. No, I don't care. But that's the pitch. Yeah. <laughs> um for those who don't know what virtual cinematography is, um, is that you go into a computer and then uh, you take a camera into your computer, like Virtuosity or The Matrix, and then uh, this is a bit. I'm doing a bit. Uh, it's a bit, <laughs> but you're, you're kind of right. It's funny you, you mentioned The Matrix. So virtual cinematography does encompass a very wide range of techniques, and that's kind of why it's really fuzzy at the moment. Yeah. Um, mentioning The Matrix, though, one of the first things that you could consider like virtual cinematography in the contemporary era was the bullet time effect. Mm. Which where, a lot, everybody knows that scene, right? Where he's going backwards, dodging the bullets in slow motion. But I feel mm. like a lot of people don't realize how that was achieved, right? And it's just cameras in a big 360. Yeah, it was like a, like 270 degrees of cameras. And it was just a bunch of small cameras that were all shooting like eight frames a second. They were using DSLRs at that point. Um, which, you know, you have to remember this was, what ninety eight was when when it they was were shooting released? it. I think yeah, yeah like ninety nine. Okay, when they were shooting it. So like a camera to shoot eight frames a second in a digital file of a certain resolution back then was already sort of high end, right? And they were using like dozens of them, and then stitching them together in the same way that now when you take a panorama on your phone, like your iPhone, that's the exact same technique. People don't realize like your phone when you go across. The Grand Canyon, it's not like it's not making a video. It's taking like a bunch of photos as you pan across. And then that's why you hit the wait 30 seconds is because it's processing that and stitching it together. Mm -hmm. That shows how far technology has come. For sure. Um, So essentially then if I have a smartphone, I can dodge bullets. Yeah. That's yeah, how that pretty, works. Pretty much. Yeah. This is yeah. good. I'm going to put this theory to the test. <laughs> and I'm going to do it with 270 degrees of cameras. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, I feel like even just kind of taking a step back before we even get to like, like taking the, the concept of the, the panoramas and, and the bullet time, like for people who aren't super technically inclined, like you have to realize that all movies, and I'm making a big quotation marks, are essentially just a series of individual pictures that play in in uh in order and your brain interprets it as moving right right 24 Um, frames per second gives that lifelike quality to it do you know why i just learned this somehow i'd never known this before just recently do you know why movies are called flicks why 
So when they were originally projected, they were projected at a lower frame rate, which I think was something like 16 frames per second, which created this sort of flickering image effect. And that's why they're called that. Still, oh, wow. Somehow missed that till a second ago. That's interesting. Flicks. Yeah. Now, anytime I hear flicks, I just think it, it should be preceded by porno. Or uh, net. Or net. Yeah. yeah. Or, or net. Yeah. Oh. I don't know what you guys are. What is that? Is, is that new? Is, <laughs> is, what is porno flicks? Oh, it's not a website. You're just talking. You're just, you're Honestly, just, it's an expression. I, mean, I get it. Yeah. A, a website like Pornhub, though, really set the precedent for how a website like Netflix could exist in the infa- internet like infrastructure. But that's for sure. A, well, yeah. Topic. Porn yeah. traditionally leads the way technologically as oh, far yeah. as direct to consumer home media. Yeah. Yeah. I don't remember if we were talking about that online or, or offline, but we were talking about how essentially a lot of, and even a bunch of my tech friends would say that, like, most of the new technology that happens with like streaming or internet technology first goes through porn and then everyone adopts it from there. It's almost like the two main uh, sources for innovation are the military and pornography. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. That's well, that's why sex and violence. I mean, that's it. Yeah. Uh, That's that's, that's ultimately why Blu-ray won that format war. That's why there's no more HD uh, DVD because porn ultimately sided with Blu-ray. Mm hmm. So thanks, so, yeah. thanks, porn, bro. If you're trying to get into some new ventures, just start with porn. It's easier than the military. They have like loops and balance, yeah. checks and balances. <laughs> they have like they have like gatekeeping. Porn you know is what I'm saying? Openly welcoming the trans. Community. Hell yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so uh, wrapping this back around, yeah. like, what are we talking about? We, um, yeah. So like, essentially, starting from the initial like 16 frames someone cranking a a a wheel in order to make um the film itself go like we've we've moved beyond that to having like digital film and then from there we've even gone so far as to like not even needing a physical camera person in that like we uh and that yeah that and and that is actually that is fairly recent yeah and and you started to see techniques. So visual effects, obviously, uh, is a huge part of, of filmmaking today. And that's where you first started to see the idea of, yeah, creating a virtual camera. Yeah. Um, but everything, even up until like the early 2010s in that scope, was pretty rigid. And it felt like animation. It felt like Pixar's mm-hmm. early camera movement. If you look at like Toy Story and like a lot of Pixar's early films, like everything was very still, yeah, or like very simple pans and dollies, um, and that's because on a artistic level, you had a lot of animators trying to cinema cinematically create something, yeah, um, and that language of emotional lighting and creative lighting necessarily transfer over directly from cinematographers yeah um but even on a technological level it's like computers in the early 90s late 90s and even the early 2000s weren't able they gradually got better but they weren't able to process a virtual camera that's moving in a three-dimensional space the way a real camera can move in a three-dimensional space i could pick up a camera and turn it a million times in circles and flip it all over the place. And that's just a crazy handheld move right. in a fight scene for me yeah. to do that in animation is like tons of rendering problems. And, but 
we're living in the future now. So that is all changing. And the same things, really, uh, video games are what drove a lot of that. Um, yeah, I was going to say, because uh, video games over the last like few decades have become a lot more cinematic. Like mm-hmm. uh, my my roommate and I were discussing because she only plays like linear platformers. And I have just been recently playing a game that has bumped up its engine to the Unreal Engine, mm-hmm. um, which if you haven't played anything on the Unreal Engine, it's amazing. Um, Do you know, can you rattle off a couple examples? Um, Kingdom Hearts three. Uh, yes, I Gears assume. of War. Ge- yeah, Gears of War. God of War. Yes. Oh, yeah. God of War. Yeah, that's. Yeah, yeah. I've played that one. It's um, great. Which I think to me was my first like ultra cinematic, like large scale game was God of War one. Mm-hmm. Um, which is was like revolutionary even before we had like the Unreal Engine and like these really high performing consoles. Like that was the first thing that essentially married cinematic storytelling with gameplay. Yeah. Um, and so like now that that area is getting a lot more cinematic, we can kind of take some of that technology and apply it to actual like movie storytelling and things of that sort. Exactly. And like, I mean, if you look at like motion capture has been in the video game industry for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just now starting, I'm not going to say trickle over into the film industry, but be used in the film industry on a level that feels cinematic. And that was always sort of, there was a gatekeeping element to the visual effects communities in film and the production communities, the physical production communities, camera departments, design departments, um, where like, they were like, ah, oh, yeah, visual effects, you can do a bunch of stuff, but none of it ever feels real. It doesn't look good. It, it's, you know, you only do it because to do it any other way would, would truly be physically impossible mm-hmm. or extremely expensive. Um, what's changed now is, like, things aren't necessarily extremely expensive anymore. They're still just physically impossible. When right. you look at something like the Avengers movies and things like that, and granted, I mean, those are definitely multi-million dollar movies, but a lot of those multi-million dollars isn't necessarily the actual visual effects budgets and, and what's really, like, that's going into actors, you know, right. that ensemble cast, right. and, uh, the, the marketing campaigns for these kind of films. So um, something like, you guys remember the Final Fantasy movie that came out? Yes. yes. That was not a good movie, but it was definitely ahead of its time in exploring that motion capture photorealistic idea of filmmaking right mm-hmm. or filmmaking in that in that manner and they went similar to the movie the beowulf that came the out Zemeckis oh, with yeah. uh, ray winstone they went full cgi in like their characters environments they motion captured a lot of real people and then photorealized them um and that for the technology then that was still there was still a bit of a gap and we spoke before the the podcast started about the uncanny valley yeah where for anyone who doesn't know what the uncanny valley is um it's it's more so a term and a specific thing uh but it's the idea that when you're looking at something that is artificially created but is supposed to appear real um 
if you imagine like a bell curve or something like there's a there's a point where things can be more like more detail and more realistic looking to a point and it drops into the uncanny valley where there's just it looks completely real except for something and that something doesn't sit well with people right normally all. it's it's something that is meant to look human specifically right and it's, it's yeah. something it can look totally like a person but something is just yeah just a little bit off whereas if you've got something like i don't know like thanos in infinity war right like that there are shots where he looks incredibly photorealistic clearly that's a cartoon but it's not he's only sort of human he's a big purple alien guy so yeah. that doesn't necessarily apply there right exactly yeah uh, and and that is why I think you're seeing a lot of this early virtual cinematography stuff starting in movies like The Jungle Book and The Lion King, where they're not attempting to make photoreal animals. Um, like, I, I was listening to an interview with Andy Serkis about the Mowgli Netflix movie that he just did, mm-hmm. and they were using a lot of sort of virtual cinematography tools where... Um, for anyone to get an idea of like what this tool means practically, imagine making the Jungle Book. Everyone kind of knows that story, I feel like. Making the Jungle Book, and obviously the kid's not talking to a real panther. So imagine there's a real camera shooting this real kid in front of a real blue screen. And then on top of that camera is like an iPad or some other device with a display that's showing that real kid blue screens keyed out and there's like a rough animated jungle behind him with full sunlighting and reflections and a like a wireframe or even more detailed panther yeah next to this kid and the actor who's playing that panther is also there on the set in a full suit with a bunch of dots on his face following every facial expression he makes. And in that movie specifically, like they even went as far as like all, everyone was on all fours. So if they arched their back a certain way, that data could be applied to the Panther model. Yeah. And what you get is you don't get a Panther that moves and acts like an actual Panther, but you get a Panther that has visual expressions that feel like what our brains know as human visual expressions, Mm -hmm. facial expressions. I want to know if the Blu-ray contains any footage of Ben Kingsley on all fours with mocap dots all over him, because if so, I will buy that today. There's a, there's a, (laughs) I'll send you a link. It's not, it's not for that movie, but I think when he played a Sauron, did he play Sauron? Like some evil dragon? Oh, are you and, thinking uh, of uh, Benedict Cumberbatch? Yeah, yeah, was, yeah, uh, yeah. Benedict yeah. Cumberbatch. Smog? Smog. Yeah, yeah, Smog. Yeah, Smog. There's a video of him playing Smog, and it's literally... Yeah. It's him, him on, on his fours, belly, yeah. like, like rolling around. Yes, I've, seen, like I've seen little bits of mocap stuff behind the scenes, like making Marvel movies and whatnot. Mocap, mm-hmm. by the way, like we're, we're kind of, if, you, if you are listening and you don't know what mocap is, it is like if you've seen actors with the little dots all over them, that's, that's mocap. So basically, they, they what? They, it's, all it, those are so you can Motion read. capture... Yes. Which yeah, probably helps. Yeah, yeah, and every every little dot, right, is just a point that they can use for reference, so that later when you're mapping the digital effect onto the actor, you're still retaining that performance. Exactly. Yeah. Except now we're at a point where things are real time, or or close to real time. So, and this goes back to 
video games again, who really have been the ones driving this technology. The latest God of War was lauded for its cinematic praise and the fact that it had no cuts between its gameplay and its cinematic cut sequences. Yeah. While retaining like the same level of graphics, which anyone who's played video games through the 2000s remembers, you would see these cool sequences, and then you go to play the game, and it's like 8 bit. You're like, the fuck's going on? Right. And then you <laughs> yeah. also have this gap where you have to sit there waiting for and it to wait load. Wait for it to yeah. load. So none of that was in this game. And the way that works is they were able to render everything, including the gameplay itself, and transitioning to what were those cinematic sequences as real time. Um, and there was still a lot of post-processing that happened once they captured all this stuff, but capturing it in real time was the big key. So uh, a scene of that thing, for example, where like there's a scene in the game where Kratos and this little kid that he's chaperoning are fighting a Cyclops. And there's a behind-the-scenes video of the creation of that scene where it's literally three people in capture suits and the head cinematic designer of that game who same as dory something um but he he was just a to be involved in that whole process and he's there with an ipad holding it as if it's a real camera viewing it as if it's a real camera moving around these humans in these suits but the way he's framing and this is where it truly becomes virtual cinematography he's framing someone who represents a 16 foot tall tall cyclops mm-hmm. yeah and the relationships between people's physical so the cyclops might be standing directly over kratos in this virtual scene but the two actors could be 20 feet away so everyone's brain is rewired now actors are acting differently in these spaces yeah they're they're exaggerating moves or like reaching out to someone who in reality is 20 feet away and reacting to something 20 feet away, but knowing that in the virtual space, they're two feet away. Mm-hmm. And it's in that kind of case. And, and up until, up until even all the way, something very similar to those sort of techniques were used in Disney's jungle book movie. Mm-hmm. Um, where you're in, you're, you're bringing the virtual world, but you're looking at it through the prism of the real world, if that makes sense, the physical world. The latest Jungle Book, or I'm sorry, the latest Lion King movie has sort of changed that. It's very under wraps what is going on on that set, but it, you can gleam a lot if you listen to the visual effects supervisor, uh, Rob Legato. Mm-hmm. He did the Jungle Book. He was on Avatar. He's been really a huge proponent in this behind the scenes for a very long time uh, and it, you can gleam enough from his interviews and, and just looking into that what they did was combine all those techniques with things that are advancing in vr and you have something similar to the false world or not the false but the the fictional world that was um in ready player one i forget the name of it uh, uh the oasis the oasis where the director, the DP, the production designer, the talent are all putting on suits and headsets, and then they're in Africa. And Donald Glover is in a suit and a headset in the real world, but he is appearing as some some fun, like not this final render of Simba, but like so like a wireframed, right. roughly modeled lion 
talking with Beyonce and like the DP and the director are able to all. So it really is a virtual set, and yeah. Virtual filmmaking at that point, but you're able. The the what's interesting is the you're doing all that to enable techniques and thought processes from traditional and practical filmmaking. Yeah, it's interesting. So basically, they're they're marrying the like these digital virtual environments with augmented reality in order to essentially kind of circle back around to using traditional uh, cinematography methods because before they had to use uh, like tennis balls and they're like, pretend this tennis ball is your co your uh, your (laughs) co-star. And then like the actor has to imagine what it's like, which, you know, always ends up in varying degrees of success. Like sometimes you can kind of tell that the actor is disengaged because they are essentially in a blue room acting off of a, a tennis ball. And, you know, it takes a lot of focus and determination to do a legit scene with that level of disconnection from what your material is. Yeah. But now they can actually be in in the at, as much as possible in the environment and kind of play off of that and be able to do these scenes relatively like like a play like the 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 play environment is just in the virtual headset or the augmented reality which essentially allows us to get back to a place where we can do more advanced uh cinematography and more advanced shots using this technology yeah which is really interesting um as a as a cinematographer does this or like a dp uh does that excite you or how does this make you feel so i've i'm have a mixed bag of feelings about it overall it excites me overall okay. it makes me think that clearly like it makes the the opportunities within storytelling so much more massive yeah um and i am just sort of a a creative technologist in general i enjoy keeping up on what the latest technological trends are and what they can do and thinking about what they they will continue to do in the future, um, and like I sort of eschewed things like VR initially. I don't like putting on headsets and goggles and stuff, but I understand the power of them, and yeah. I find that to be very interesting. Um, and when I I say I don't like to like be in them for too long, like I I'd like to go into VR worlds and and like mess around with VR gaming and stuff like that. And I've watched a lot of VR films and. It's all really cool, but I can only stand like an hour of it personally. Yeah. I think I'm old in that sense. <laughs> For real. And like you have kids now who are born literally staring at screens and it's going to become natural for them to yeah. be in headsets or to to look at what we think are not real and, and virtual environments um, as the standard and the default environment to live and breathe and be in. And, um, that is interesting to me. That's really cool to me. Um, I do think, I think the same way there's like people still shoot film. It's like people are still going to make normal movies. Not every film also is going to call for like building a VR world and launching into a headset. Right. You know, that's that's not how, like, the favorite d- wouldn't have made any sense. Like, that, <laughs> right. you know, Green Book isn't going to be... A- <laughs> They're all lions and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, no, my, honestly, my fear about going longer than an hour in one of those headsets is I might decide I'm not coming back. 
I'm just yeah. staying here. This is better. Oh, yeah. The world is burning <laughs> down, but in this headset, I can be free. I remember at one point, at one point, you you were showing me a VR thing at one point, and I put the headset on, and I guess the the hub was just this room. So the room was a nice oh, yeah. nice yeah. place, like, and you could see chairs, and you could you could look all around. You could see like sliding glass doors. You could see outside, but you can't really walk around. You can't really interact with anything in that right. room. You're just in that room looking around. And I swear to you, I was like, this is better. This is better than the real world. Why do I ever have to leave this room? Who's going to who's gonna make me? If I decide I'm going to stay here, who's going to make me leave the room? That would be my fear. The more, the more developed this all becomes, the more you're able to interact. Eventually, we all, if we want them, probably will have the suits and stuff from Ready Player One so that we feel everything. Mm-hmm. We have a tactile experience on top of the visual experience. At a certain point, as long just hook a thing to my arm so that I get nutrition, just put a little bag on me right here so I don't have to get up, and I'm staying. I'm it, staying in there. It begs the question, it begins to beg the question, what is reality? Mm-hmm. You know, if, if reality is defined by what we perceive sensorily, sensorily, through our senses, mm-hmm. yeah. if we can create technology that tricks essentially those those senses or just satisfies them then is that not technically a second form of reality right at a certain point too it could become the default reality like yeah i mean you're not familiar with simulation theory right yeah 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 the idea that on a long enough timeline there will be a simulation that is so advanced as to be utterly indistinguishable from our reality and the theory further posits that if that's possible it has already happened and we're living <laughs> we're, in it yeah we're we're living in it yeah i mean or kind of getting what you or kind of expanding on what you were getting at like it becomes kind of a surrogate situation like the movie surrogates with Bruce Willis, where everyone has their ideal bodies, which are basically robots and everyone's in these little pods. Um, and so now Bruce Willis can have hair, which is his ideal form. Um, <laughs> so like, Bruce Willis's ideal form is John McClane. Right. Uh, even more. Anyway, <laughs> he's just a big ball of hair. A cousin from the Um, so like we it we could essentially theoretically get to that place where we are all living in these little boxes and experience a world through these like machines or something to that effect. Um, I mean, kind of circling back to the idea of of using it cinematographically. Yeah, yeah, I'll take it. Um, I mean, yeah, I think that kind of like what you were saying, it would be genre specific. Like, I think that like there are specific genres that really cater towards it, like sci-fi or horror or thriller or even um, just like supernatural. Yeah. Those kind of things I think very much are kind of already require a leap of like, or a pause in what is the word I'm looking for? Suspension, suspension of, of disbelief. No, Thank you. Right. Carrots. Yeah. A suspension of care. No. Um, <laughs> but um, so then having these immersive environments allows you to tell richer stories using that uh, piece. But if it is just like, you know, the favorite or something that is very, human and grounded i don't know if it would necessarily be the best use of it like you're like all right cool now you're in victorian english and and that takes me back to what i was saying is virtual cinematography is still that is sort of the 
the future forward upper echelon like this is what its absolute most powerful forms can be and what we can do there's also the idea that you're on something like the favorite yeah. and you're shooting in a location that's set up like a 16th you know century castle or whatever but outside is a goddamn skyscraper mm-hmm. and <laughs> you know everyone knows now that you know background environments and things like that are totally blue screened to key screen and all of that but some tools now and this, it's really this idea of real-time rendering that over the past two or three years it was pushed through game engines like unreal um predominantly unreal um where now on set it's not like oh there's just a big green screen there we know we're going to put something now it's like there's a green screen there but we're able to live key it and feed in something else and we can also be working on the lighting of that background plate and oh maybe that building doesn't look as good let's put up something else that looks like this and oh can we add like a reflection off of that now that there's like a reflection that can motivate an actual piece of real lighting on our actress and like these are all real-time, like, pre-visual um, stuff that used to be done just, like, in previs for imagining what an insane special effects sequence would look like on set for having something to be like, okay, this is right, this is how we can maybe key it later, is now all real-time where on set you can say, oh, what would happen if we changed the, the background to do this? Or what would happen if we flipped that on its side yeah yeah um you were talking about being scared that you'll never leave here's my fear okay um because because of how like technologies start to meld over time um (laughs) so we we i remember when they were first talking about the unreal engine Mm -hmm. back when um i think it was force force unleashed was getting started um, and how they were essentially fabricating all of these realistic um, backgrounds. And they were getting to a point and using like C3PO as a, a way of showing that like you don't necessarily need um, actors to do things anymore because we could program C3PO to do all of these things right. in these um, virtual environments. And so now that was, I want to say, like 15 years ago. Um, and so at this point we are getting to the the place where we can not only do that, but we have, um, we're developing robot, uh, stunt people. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have the technology to, you load up someone's, uh, footage and their face and their yeah. voices, and you can fabricate them saying different things. And so now we essentially have these, these virtual environments with, um, with, the ability to uh, place a, a robot or like a, a, a fake body into a situation. And then you can also paint someone's face on top of that thing. Yeah. Like it's, it's getting to a place where you don't we're like, we're removing all of these aspects, like some of them for the better, like stunt people. Hell yeah. Um, <laughs> but like, we're getting to a place where we can essentially create these alternate worlds and these alternate environments that like, can be used for nefarious means, which like is the most terrifying thing for me. Yes, there's very much a light side and a dark side to these technological developments, right? On the light side, you talk about virtual cinematography as a way 
maybe the favorite doesn't necessitate an approach like that, but I would imagine the whole experience would be drastically different if you feel like you are in the room with these characters while things are going on. It's how you talk about like uh, genre stuff could benefit from it immensely. I know uh, Robert Englund, who plays Freddy Krueger, just did a VR horror project with, and I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of his name, but Alexandre Aja, Aja, the guy who did... uh, Inarito? No, not him. Uh, He's a horror director. Oh, okay. but they just did a, a horror VR project together, and I can't imagine what that experience would be like. Experience experiencing a horror movie well constructed as somebody who's actually in the in, room in the yeah, while this yeah. is all happening. So all of that stuff is really, really exciting. But then you consider, Tari, what you were just talking about, and how somebody we're getting to the point where somebody could take your likeness and map it onto somebody else, or your likeness could just exist independently of being mapped onto somebody else. And your likeness could be used for just about any dang thing somebody wants to use it for. This type of thing is already porn. Porn is leading the way on this. If you uh, search, yeah. if deep you fakes. search, yes. Yeah. One more time. Turn. Deep fakes. Deep, deep fakes. fakes. Yes. So deep fakes, you gotta you gotta <laughs> rummage around on some of the seedier parts of the internet. But essentially, the the premise behind deep fakes is they take usually it's a celebrity. They take their face and map it on to mm-hmm. people who are who were filmed having sex. And at a yeah. certain point, these will progressed to where they're they are indistinguishable they're pretty dang good so far yeah yeah. you won't see the scene that's i mean yeah like you have deep fakes but it's like benjamin button remember the curious case of benjamin button yeah that was deep fake technology before it was something that you know maybe not your average but that someone who and that's that is what's scary about technology is how it trickles down and how it advances so rapidly where that same technique on a million dollar film was, you know, high safeguarded, super crazy stuff is now like there's 12 year old kids who have gaming computers and they can pull that off if right. they have the patience and the dedication to just right. learn the techniques. Right. And, and consider the fact that we are less than a hundred years removed from say like the, the Lumiere brothers going, wait a minute. We can take these moving pictures and project them onto a big screen. Yeah. Less than 100 years have elapsed between then and now. So this shit is developing rapidly and exponentially. Right. One could say the first deep fake was uh, uh, Nymphomaniac, which we talked about on this show, which like they actually developed the technology to like map these people's faces on these porn stars. You Mm -hmm. could imagine what it's like having sex with uh, Shia LaBeouf. Um, that was the sole purpose for it, right? It was, so it was, it was the only reason that movie was right. made. Of course. Yeah. Yes. They um, did not allow him to title it Shia LaBeouf Sex Simulator. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what it's called in Japan. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I uh, <laughs> I had a silver lining and I just lost it <laughs> thinking about Shia LaBeouf's dick. <laughs> Jesus. But but yeah, so we are we are rapidly coming up to a point in time where your face can just be thrown out there and you could be depicted as doing things very realistically, very believably that you would not do saying things you would not say. And how do you put that genie back in the bottle, especially once that technology becomes more and more and more consumer accessible? I mean, I don't, I really don't think you do to be honest. I, I think that I think, and that's why when I first brought this topic up, I was like, I want to talk about virtual cinematography and what it means for like the movies we're watching now. Like, yeah, Lion King, this shit's going to be, you're going to cry so much watching Lion King. <laughs> you're going to cry so much. That shit's going to look so real. That yeah. real looking ass lion 
It's gonna die. Mm-hmm. You're gonna be so sad. <laughs> you're gonna see the hoof marks like, in his ribs. <laughs> exactly. Like that's just gonna be so sad. But thinking forward to like okay, 2035. Where's technology gonna be, and how is it gonna have changed our lives? Because like clearly, Earth is changing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Earth is dying. I I am a little conspiratorial and. I always find it interesting how military t- technology trickles down to consumer technology and is also displayed in cinema in a way where you'll be like, oh man, that crazy like weapon that we saw in a movie in 1980 is like a real weapon now. Or like that insane piece of technology that was in Total Recall is called the Amazon Alexa. Like, <laughs> right. Um, what is interesting to me is how much films now are pushing the idea that we gotta get the fuck out of here and go to space or motherfuckers are gonna start living underwater or we're gonna like upload our consciousness to places or we're gonna like shrink ourselves and and I'm not saying all of this is going to happen but it does make me wonder if this is an interesting whether it's conscious or not Illuminati or not Mm -hmm. if there's like a primer period before a massive technological change to how humans survive on this planet. And even those same virtual cinematography tools that are used to make cool movies right now are absolutely being used by military and industrial resources to, say, underwater welders, for example, are now being trained in virtual environments controlling robotic humanoids mm-hmm. through their through the motion, contrap- motion capture of a real welder. So underwater welders are no longer having to go underwater. They still have to learn. It's interesting. They still have to learn all the techniques as if they were. Otherwise, things will still explode and that robot will die. Yeah. But there's an element of danger removed if you can send a machine down there to physically be present for a job that dangerous. And that's one side where it's a you know huge, huge positive. Yeah. But then it's like, okay, now think about that in like a, a military complex, military right. context. Like, oh, okay, I'm just, I mean, we already have it with drone strikes where you read about the guys who were totally dissociated from dropping bombs through a screen. Right, played it like a video game. Playing like a video game. Yeah. Um. So I, I think that this kind of stuff is going to change us. I don't know how yet. I think it's going to start with how our whole, our smart home concepts are the are the start where everything is interconnected yeah to begin with the whole 5g network when it is in true fruition is going to really start to mean a lot of real time data exchange on things where you could actually at that point start having sensors in your body that can communicate and track everything that's happening in your body to a cloud that is affecting some other driver in a in a in a big you know data linked uh data web link so that's what that's what scares like similar similar fears that you you have it's just like i'm not i don't know if I'm, i'm scared i'm just sort of i wonder if this is going to be a positive revolution or if it's going to be a revolution that because it's it's based on technology and and we all know you know technology trickles down from the wealthy to the to the poor yeah 
it it makes me wonder if there's going to be a a cutoff to like how if 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 we become dependent on these technologies, if you can't keep up with them, if you can't be affording to buy the latest and greatest and always have the latest thing, how people are going to continue to survive in that yeah. era? I mean, we're already seeing it now to a degree, right? Everybody essentially needs to own a smartphone, or for all intents and purposes, you can't work. Yeah. We're already pretty dependent on the technology that we have. And yeah, it's only going to become more and more and more and more the truth. And we're not, on top of that, I don't think anybody's really actively tracking how the minds of kids are developing when you put an iPad in their hand as soon as they can form conscious thought. No. You know, so we're going to be looking at, you know, we'll be in our our 60s and 70s and we'll be looking at young people whose minds might be operating in a completely completely different way than ours would have because they developed completely differently right because the sensory input constantly and who is monitoring some of the weird shit that kids are watching that is in kids are intended to be the audience of some really weird shit on youtube yeah and on top of that you might be watching something that's fairly innocuous and then for whatever reason the algorithm decides you may also like this weird like hyper (laughs) alt-right ted talk type thing so we don't know people aren't really I don't know of any real concrete studies that have been done uh, on a mass scale. Well, yeah. I don't think there's an I don't think there's been enough time. The, if you think about the iPhone, like there were smartphones, sure, you had Blackberries and shit, but like the iPhone came out what, two thousand eight, two thousand nine? That's a decade ago. That's ten years. Like those those kids we want to be tracking and studying are ten. Yeah. 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 <laughs> like there there isn't anything to track and study yet, and you're right. I'm going to be looking back on this, at this world, on this conversation, thinking about what I was right and wrong about. Like, that's the best I'll be able to do because we are, yeah, we will be, that's why I say I feel old already because it's (laughs) like we will, we are of a different ilk, but we're not going to know how different yet. Uh, Especially us specifically, we're in a, we're in a age group and age range where we have, we were the last kids who went outside Mm -hmm. you know like uh we remember what it was like to have a home i remember what it was like to have like a home phone and Mm -hmm. not really have cell phones answering machine with tapes i remember getting my first computer and like listening to the dial up and like seeing all of this progress to where we are now Mm -hmm. but that said i'm already sort of out of the loop on some of the most cutting edge technologies or just like I said with VR, like I just don't enjoy it the way someone who is born into that being a prominent technology is going to grow with it and and love it, right. um, and be so well versed in it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like the biggest and and so far the closest st- studies that we have to what you guys are talking about are how it's affecting people socially, and that mm-hmm. like a lot of these kids who are who have access to the technology can are only really experiencing their, the world through their phones. And the only way that they like, the only reason that they do things is to be more performative um, to show other people that they are doing it. And it creates this like isolation and that you have so much access to the world, but you're also like a hundred steps removed from it because you are experiencing it through this window, not to sound like the old person that I am, but like that is, that's what we were missing in that. Like we had to go outside. Like our parents yeah. were like, Hey, 
we hate you go outside <laughs> um You're and the so the biggest like, mistake we ever made right and so like it wasn't even that like, we <laughs> made the conscious choice to be like you know what i'm gonna go outside it's just like that's what we had to do yeah. mm-hmm. but now like there are a hundred million different ways for kids to entertain themselves and th- so they have more choice um but at the same time like there's there's no dearth of things for them to consume and so like that is essentially like what their social society is built around yeah this is sort of endless consumption yeah Yeah, Yeah. like i was just thinking about the fact that we we were of a generation where like when i was younger when i was growing up if i didn't happen to catch a movie while it was playing on tv you literally if you wanted to watch it on your own time you had to leave your house go to a store get a physical copy often a, a vhs tape go home watch it and then leave your home again to bring it back. Yeah. <laughs> that just seems so absurd now. Like, I imagine you would explain this to a kid now. Yeah. And the kid be like, like what the fuck was wrong with you guys? Why? Why? Yeah. I mean, well, think about the generation before us who had, if they missed a movie in theaters, they yeah. might have just missed it. Right. Like, like uh, you know. Or if you missed an episode of TV. Like, uh, if you didn't catch a rerun of it, that's it. You may never see yeah, the thing. You may yeah. never see it. No, it's nuts. My uh my dad is seventy he's about to turn seventy-six next month. And we've talked about how when he was a little kid, they were just really starting to roll out TVs for, for like mass purchase. Mm-hmm. And they would literally sit there and watch what was called the test patent. And there were about three shows that existed. Wow. So he still remembers that. You know, like, it really is, like, obviously he's he's a little bit old, like, he had me a little bit later than I think a lot of fathers have their kids, but he still remembers. He's of a, of a generation. There are people alive now that are alive, kicking, and healthy oh, yeah. that were there when the first TVs hit people's homes. Mm-hmm. This shit moves fast. It's scary. Yeah. I mean, circling it back to more positive things, <laughs> um, I, I think that, like, because you sent us... Um, uh, you sent us an interview with the guy who did Jungle Book and, mm-hmm. and uh, Lion King, and he was talking about how, like, how I guess when he was doing Jungle Book, it was like they were just trying a bunch of different things, and it was new. Um, right. And you also sent us this thing about how, like, this guy who basically combined an iPad, a PS3, yeah, um, and the controllers to make his own rig, mm-hmm. um, which I think is really cool because it it essentially allows that guy people. ended up working as a major production supervisor on the jungle or um on the lion king oh really later a lot of a lot of what he did and like sort of jerry rigged together and what rob legato was doing on a higher end level were synthesized to create like the version 2.0 of like both of their ideas oh, together yeah that's awesome because yeah. like one thing that i think really gets people started in creative fields like like movie making and and things of that sort is essentially you know you always hear the story about people being like yeah and i got my first uh i got my first like eight millimeter camera from my dad and i just started making films like that and now like essentially if you are a kid sitting at home and you have uh an ipad which lots of kids do and you have a ps4 which most kids do <laughs> like you can essentially become like a, a 
you know, an amateur filmmaker and you won't be behind on the current technology. Like that's the one big thing that like, I think is really cool about being able to, uh, I think he called it democratize that technology is that like, you're not starting a hundred steps behind. You're not, like going from getting a eight millimeter camera right, and having to figure to out like what they're yeah. doing now, you can essentially start where where the professionals are, and you can build from there, which I yeah. think is really cool. And it's, I mean, uh, and it's similar to just it's that way with quote unquote real cameras now, where you know a thousand dollar DSLR now shoots video that a twenty thousand dollar digital camera ten years ago could only dream of. Right. But there is still that gap of like, oh, there's the red and the Alexas of the world where you shoot really high end stuff and then there's like other oh, there's kids with their DSLRs. But right. This stuff in particular, you're right. It's and and um the guy's name is Gershish. I'm gonna fuck up his last name. It's a very long last name. But we'll tweet it. Yeah. We'll tweet it out. Um <laughs> I mean, you guys are both right in that. Yeah, it's way more democratized, and because it's all so very new, and it was driven by not necessarily consumer level technologies, but definitely high. I mean, it, he, they're using video cards and computer systems that the nerdiest of nerds and hardcore gamers are also using. Right. Just for four different reasons, but based out of the same technological challenges. Hmm. Um. So yeah, it is democratized and it is like a kid with a PS4 and an iPad now and enough time to sit and and do it could render out something that feels like that Final Fantasy movie of 10 decades ago, which seemed like an insane... I remember when I first saw that as a kid, I thought that was insane. I was like, holy shit, this like looks real, but it's not real. Yeah. And like they're flipping around and it's like... And now it's just like... A kid with Cinema 4D and way too much time on his hands could do this, could animate the exact kind of stuff and put it out there on their own. And it's not that much different from what ILM is doing with the Avengers. Yeah. And like, I think that that, like you, you bring up Final Fantasy, the spirits within. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But also like Final Fantasy Advent Children, which was the kind of sequel to Final Fantasy 7. Um, which is also kind of utilizing that technology. They're able to use like insane angles and do a lot of cool stuff, which is, I think that, I think that is what I really am excited to get to the point where we can have a lot of photorealistic action that utilizes these vertical angles that you couldn't get without a human being like laying on their back and getting stepped in their face. (laughs) Um, Because like I watch, like I watch a lot of anime and they are able to because they're using animation utilize these really amazing angles like uh musashi kishimoto who did um the naruto series Mm -hmm. when in the end of the first series there is a fight between two of the main characters and he's able to essentially get a shot where it is underneath the water looking up and you see all the ripples of them standing on the water and then he is able to essentially dolly up from there into uh the the regular view and you see the reflections and that's not a shot that you can get non-virtually because one you disrupt the water and it would ruin the whole shot right um but also like you can't have these people standing on water um and so the i'm excited for the time that we are able 
to get to the point where we can do that. And I think we get a little bit of that in Alita Battle Angel. Yeah. I'm, um, I'm interested to see that movie. Yeah. Because that's another one that's very based on a lot of these technologies. Mm-hmm. And, and that one is a very, like, Jungle Book, there's one human character. Right. Um, and the rest, you can just throw. It's all virtual worlds. But Alita is a mix between, like, real environments and virtual environments and real characters and virtual characters. So like, I'm really interested to see like how it manages to marry those two things. Cause mm-hmm. it's the closest thing to what I want, which is balls to the wall action, but in live action. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to think, do you guys remember what is it? Sky captain in the world of tomorrow. Yeah. Uh-huh. That was the first time I really remember people making a big deal about, no, no, it's, it's real actors, but entirely CG environments. Yeah. And I remember that movie came out and didn't really make that much of a splash. And now that's so far beyond the norm. Now that's what half of the big right. movies do front to back. Yeah. And I also like with that in mind, like I remember everyone giving George Lucas shit because like all the prequels were, were just like these, fake background environments but now it's hot shit because we can do it more photorealistically and it doesn't feel like these characters are in front of a green screen or a blue yeah. screen um because um what is that guy's name who did the jungle book because i'm uh, just gonna keep saying um, jungle book man uh, um jungle uh, book man you know was talking about how like rob legato is rob the visual legato. effects supervisor yeah. yeah um so rob legato was talking about how all the different elements have to feel like they exist in the same realm. Um, so like the, the issue that we had in the prequels, I guess, which is why a lot of shit was given is that like the environments felt fabricated and the Mm -hmm. people felt real and our brains couldn't necessarily marry the two, but now we're able to create those environments and those, those large scale, um, virtual places that have that photorealistic feel that feel tactile that like, now we're able to have the actors actually like feel like they can touch and exist in that environment. Well, do you guys see Iron Man? No, not Iron Man. Uh, Aquaman. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, that's a great example of that marriage as well. Um, when you look at all the underwater battle scenes, mm-hmm. um, and especially the underwater uh, like gladiator sequence thing i forget yeah. what they called it the ring of fire was yeah, that it that's what it was yeah yeah i couldn't i was tripping out i was like how's there a ring of fire yeah. underwater but um it is it's interesting how they how they approach shooting stuff like that because it is a lot of real camera but real time some sense of the environment's happening but then when you start to when you start to do that, you start to think even more in depth. And what I I mean, that's a campy feel good movie, but I thought it was really great cinematography because, and and production design because when you when you are able as you're shooting as a creator, as a director, as a cinematographer, as a production designer, to look at things as if you're in this environment that you're fabricating, and not just look at pieces that you're going to remove and replace however many months or weeks down the road, you're going to start to think about things differently. And what I really loved was everyone in that movie was on wires and blown about in ways that you felt their weightlessness underwater. Mm-hmm. Like it seemed like they did a lot of, they're very careful to show that very well, even when there's an explosion happening or, 
yeah, Aquaman moves like a torpedo underwater, but like, what does a torpedo moving look like actually feel like? How do we show speed in an environment where speed is also reduced relatively visually reduced and like, um, that's really cool. Yeah. It's like that. And, and that's what I mean where this is, this is happening all the time. And the, like, it's all, we're already in the virtual cinematography age. We are just, we're not fully immersed in it to the point where we're, we're still not 100% animating everything. The Lion King is the first thing I can think of where it is, it's a complete animation. Mm -hmm. It's it's Pixar, like, Mm -hmm. you know, in that sense. But there's a, going to be a filmmaking, from a filmmaking standpoint, there's going to be a distinction that makes it a live action movie somehow and not an animated film. Because even like, like Wally looked fucking gorgeous right Mm -hmm. you know like and they're animated films that look great but you're still like ah it's an animated film whereas something about even that trailer is like something about the lion king it's like it's an it's all animated but it's not an animated film there's something about it where it's like this is a live action film right like you're hearing people refer to it as such but technically it isn't technically it's it's a photorealistically animated Animated. movie but that takes us all the way back to we're progressing to a point where these total fabrications are going to be increasingly indistinguishable from reality. Yeah. And what does that mean as far as how we engage with media, how we engage with the world, how we engage with other people, how we engage with ourselves even? Mm-hmm. Fascinating time to be alive. Like we're very much like, are, are you guys ever do you just take a step back and become consciously aware of the fact that we are more or less an in-between generation? Right. Like you were talking before about how the world is very much changing and we are the last generation. I think that will remember how it was before yeah and so yeah going forward what is reality going to mean what is truth going to mean we're already seeing before these technologies become consumer accessible affordably we're already seeing the the concepts of truth and reality attacked and eroded so really what does happen to the way we engage in toto uh once these things become an everyday part of our lives yeah yeah um guys we are uh we're out of time I know, I know. Uh, but this has been a really fascinating conversation. Like, I feel like I'm going to be thinking about this for the next few days. Um, what I'm really looking forward to is the little, the little window before it all collapses, where every character in every movie has an emoting helmet, like Patrick Wilson in Aquaman. <laughs> <laughs> that helmet, no joke. That helmet is my pick for best movie of 2018. Not Aquaman, but specifically his emoting helmet. So I'm looking forward to the little window between now and total societal collapse. This beautiful oasis of time where every, it's like if, if uh, uh, Yorgos Lanthimos is going to go make the favorite, they're all going to have CG emoting helmets and whatnot. Everything's going to go bug-eyed. <laughs> and it's going to be amazing. And then you really got to appreciate it while it's happening because once it's over. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a big, that's um, a big tech bus. <laughs> Matt, uh, where can people find you if they want to talk to you uh, more about virtual cinematography? You can find me on Instagram at wrongmattsmith. Okay, where where does that name come from? So, <laughs> <laughs> so my idea of it was 
My name is Matt Smith, which uh -huh. is very generic. And if you just search Matt Smith, you're not going to find me, generally speaking. Unless we have tons of mutual friends in common already or something like that. You're not really going to find me. So my idea, well, you're always going to find a wrong Matt Smith. <laughs> so my idea was to be the wrong Matt Smith. Yeah. A lot of people think that it has something to do with Doctor Who, which I've never seen an episode of Doctor Who in my life. Yeah. Uh... You should change that, but I get it. I yeah, I missed the boat. I missed the boat, man. I don't know. It's over. <laughs> yeah, it's I can over. never it's, enjoy it ever. It's over. It's over for me. <laughs> but I also made that name while Matt Smith was the current doctor. Yeah. So there's a lot of people who are like, oh, it's a dude. and I'm like, I don't. Know. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have seen a episode of Doctor Who. Okay. David you don't have Tennant to justify yourself to me. It's just, yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's great. Um, <laughs> where can they find you? Uh, where can they? I am on Twitter and Instagram at the Lex Michael. Awesome. And you can find me at Tari J, T-A-U-R-I-J-A-Y. But you can find this podcast at Missing Outcast. That's both on Instagram and Twitter. I do um, miss Outcast. Yeah, bruh. I, oh, yeah. It's good double. <laughs> Um, but uh, also make sure that if you have a chance and you love what we're doing, uh, go on to iTunes, leave us a rating or review or both. Um, it just helps other people find the show. It helps people who like things to find things that they like, which is the show. Um, so please do that. That would be a great mitzvah for us. Um, if you leave us a rating, we will uh, or a review. We will read it here on the show. So if that helps uh, incentivize you, bro, do that shit. Um, once again, thank you, Matt. Yeah. Uh, we enjoyed having you again. Uh, we hope you enjoy playing golf. You like doing that, right? What else do old white people oh, like man. to do? Oh, man, that me out for a second. <laughs> actually, I am going to go play golf for the first time, <laughs> actually, pretty soon. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I like IPAs. Cool. And... Um, <laughs> I'm gonna leave it there. What was the other one? I think the other one was rock climbing. Oh yeah, 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 yeah rock yeah. climb a lot. Yeah, all the things that middle-aged white men do. Yeah, great. Um, <laughs> well, uh, keep people posted on all those fun things on your uh, Instagram, which is again wrong, Matt Smith. Thank you guys for listening, and we hope you have a wonderful week. Uh, this has been the retrospective that is introspective, and now you have a new perspective. It rhymes, so it's super cute. We got to put a beat under it. Hell yeah. And just say it like seven or eight times. Retrospective. Introspective. Oh, they're actually committing to this. Retrospective. Retrospective. Oh, I can't. Introspective. You just fade this out of bed. New perspective. Did you know a turkey puppet once ran for the presidency of Ireland? Did you know that meat once rained from the skies of Kentucky? Did you know that there was an emperor of the United States for a while? Then listen to the Wiki Ship Down podcast. We live in an age when the sum total of humanity's knowledge can be found in your pocket on a smartphone at any given time. But when that knowledge is pure editable, like it is on Wikipedia, what does that say about mankind? So follow us down the digital rabbit hole as we drink, joke, and curse our way through the random button on Wikipedia and see where our journey through humanity's knowledge takes us. While you're at it, follow us on all social media at Wikiship Down. I'm Ruthann. I'm Ryan. And be sure to find us every Wednesday on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts.